Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Today's guest perhaps needs little to no introduction. He was an educator for 20 plus years before skyrocketing to superstardom as the breakout star slash mentor of Project Runway. And if you haven't already guessed it, I am speaking about the one and the only Tim Gunn. Yes, and I'm so, so, so excited um, to have Tim on the show. Since making his Project Runway debut in 2004, Tim has become a beloved fixture of fashion reality TV. Alongside Heidi Klum, he appeared on 16 seasons of Project Runway, but he was also the star of two spinoffs, Bravo's Tim Gunn's Guide to Style and Lifetime's Under the Gun, as well as serving as a mentor for Project Runway Jr. And today, he and Heidi are the executive producers and stars of Amazon's making the cut now in its third season. But Tim is so much more than the sum of his reality TV parts. He is first and foremost an educator and mentor, vocations he mastered while working at Parsons School of Design here in New York City beginning in 1982. From 2000 to 2007, he served as chair of the school's fashion design department and is credited with completely overhauling and modernizing the program and doubling enrollment in the process. Tim has also brought his expertise, advice, and signature wit to five different books, which also, to my great delight, provide fascinating glimpses and insights into his own life. And this is something we're going to learn more about today in our conversation that explores not only our shared love of fashion history, but the fashion history of Tim himself. Tim, we are such fans and admirers of what you do. Welcome to Dressed. Tim, welcome to Dressed. This is such an honor to speak with you today. I'm so excited. Well, Cassidy, it's an honor for me, too. So thank you for wanting to talk. Yeah, and I have to tell you that, and our listeners actually know this, I think I've mentioned it before, but I just had a baby four months ago, and I spent the first six weeks of my maternity leave in bed watching Project Runway from start to finish. My condolences. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, congratulations on the baby, but my condolences uh, on watching it. Start to finish. <laughs> oh, it was so, so much fun. And then I watched all of the making the cut. And, you know, I'm just sitting there in bed going, I have got to get Tim Gunn on the show. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I leapt at the chance. I would give this in a heartbeat. I'm a huge fan. <sighs> like I said, you first and foremost lead with kindness in everything you do. It's a huge inspiration. So I, hopefully we're going to talk a little bit more about that moving forward. But first, I just want to talk to you and uh, get to know you a little bit better. Starting with a question I ask all of our guests, if you have an earliest or meaningful memory of clothing from your youth that you would mind sharing with us. I have to say it's, it wouldn't be my own clothing. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my mother and my father were all always beautifully dressed. My father was always in a suit, I mean, except for weekends. But my mother and grandmother were properly tailored clothes. And this was the 50s and the 60s. So the whole fashion climate was a bit different. But actually, they and my great aunt, my great aunt Cy, whose real name was Virginia, they were all very fashionable. My great aunt Cy was very petite. So all of her clothes were custom made. And they all had her name in the label. 
as in made for. But I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is not a fashionable place by any means. And to be honest with you, I don't understand why, because for the most part, this is a city filled with uh, elected lawmakers. And you and I subscribe to the same things, the, the semiotics of clothes, the clothes we wear send a message about how the world perceives us. What do these lawmakers not understand other than Nancy Pelosi, (laughs) (laughs) who's always fashionably dressed? Yeah, that's very interesting, especially thinking about it in like the 50s and 60s, too. I mean, I guess maybe it hasn't really progressed much since then. Everybody's wearing the same suits and ties. I mean, obviously, the fashionable silhouette does, but the concept of dressing in politics maybe hasn't advanced. I agree with you completely. I'll share with you, you may or may not know this. For a number of years, I was on Capitol Hill advocating for the design piracy prohibition because fashion designers in this nation, and we're the only industrialized nation for which this is the case, fashion designers in this nation don't own their intellectual property. So anyone can copy anything. So I was working with the Council of Fashion Designers of America to hopefully get this bill through. And Cassidy, People on Capitol Hill would be running for me. I didn't know you were coming. (laughs) If I'd known you were coming, I would have dressed differently. And that's when I invoked the whole phrase about you're an elected lawmaker. Don't you feel a responsibility to your constituents? Yeah, not just to Tim Gunn, right? Right. And then that was over 10 years ago, and that did not pass, correct? No. As a matter of fact, it was during the Bush administration, the only lawmaker who would even meet with us was then-Senator Joe Biden. That is fascinating. Isn't it? And he was so receptive and so supportive that many of the lawmakers would pass our little entourage in the hallway and say, no, I don't want my wife to spend more money on clothes. Everyone was thinking this was just going to raise prices and keep people in courts. And we kept saying, this is a shield, not a sword. And everything that's currently in the market is grandfathered in. I mean, you can't go back and have Diane von Furstenberg say, well, I'm copywriting or patenting the wrap dress. That wasn't going to happen. So it had to be something new. And as you know, as someone who is a connoisseur of fashion history, this is something that goes back, you know, centuries, right? At least to the beginning of the 20th century, designers have been fighting for the right to protect their intellectual property. So it's really interesting, at least in America, that they don't have that right. And it kind of, I don't know if you agree with me, but speaks to the fact that fashion is still so dismissed, right, as having any significance that needs to be protected as intellectual and artistic property. I (laughs) 1,000% agree with you. And when we were talking about Parsons, I'll tell you some of the reasons why. Yes. And we are going to talk all about your career. I'm so excited to learn more. I think a lot more of our listeners might be familiar with you, of course, from Project Runway fame, but I'm interested to hear how you got there. And starting with kind of your youth and coming of age, you came of age in the 1960s, a period that I've, I've read you've said is your favorite in the history of fashion. And so I have two questions for you. Was this an appreciation you had for clothing at the time? when you were living in the 60s, or did that come later? And then my second question is, what was young Tim Gunn wearing in the 60s? <laughs> <laughs> well, my appreciation for the 1960s fashion and it was quite a revolution in the 1960s, from ushering in madmen like clothes to walking out at Mama Cass Elliot. No, it's a pun reflection. At the time, I didn't know what was going on, and I was paying attention to other things. But for me, I was a little prep school kid, so I had a uniform blue blazer, white shirt, gray flannel pants. And frankly, I was grateful for it because you didn't have any anxiety about 
What am I going to wear? How do I keep up with the cool kids? Not that I was ever a cool kid. I was certainly labeled a nerd and I was. But no, I was a, I wore a uniform. And then you just admitted, Tim, on, or I guess not admitted, but remembered on Making the Cut season three that you were at Woodstock? <laughs> In a blue blazer and gray flannel pants. And up to, up to my ankles in mud. How was that experience? Was it fun or was it anxiety? I can't even imagine being up to my ankles in mud and your, you know, your finely fitted clothes. It's interesting. I went with a school group, so students and faculty, and we knew we were at some juncture of significance, but we didn't know what. And we were could we could barely even hear what was happening on the stage because it was so far away. And there were, oh, Hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. or at least tens of thousands. But I don't do well in crowds. Yeah. So I retreated to the van rather quickly. <laughs> but still to have been there, I mean, I guess oh. not knowing it's significant at that moment. I was thrilling to be able to say it. And people look at me with disbelief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was actually a wow moment on Making the Cut season three, I have to say. And that beautiful setting with Heidi next to you telling us that you were at Woodstock. We love to hear it, Tim. I mean, we all love you so much. I think you know you have an international fan base. You know, my 13-year-old my nephew wanted me to make sure I told you hi. He has nothing to do with fashion, but he loves you. Oh. You know, my, my husband, my epidemiologist sister, everybody says to say hello to Tim Gunn because you're just a national and international treasure in so many ways. And I'm so excited to talk to you and get to learn a little bit more about you and starting with your time at Parsons, but maybe ahead of your time at Parsons. So the trajectory of your career path, how did you find your way to fashion and fashion education? Because if I'm not mistaken, you thought you wanted to be a sculptor. Well, and I was a sculptor for a while. I mean, initially as a kid and as a first year college student, I wanted to be an architect. But all that it took was one semester of studying architecture in the early 1970s. And I thought this is the quickest route to a mental breakdown I can possibly <laughs> imagine. Because Tough. people won't believe this either, but it was it was before computers. So you had to do all the, the presentation drawings on vellum paper and you had to drop India ink with an eyedropper, you had to drop it into a stylus and pull it across a straight edge. So it could take 40 to 60 hours to, to make a presentation drawing. And if the ink bled, then you can start all over again. I thought, this is ridiculous. So I left that. I studied English literature. And then I went back for a second degree in fine arts and thought I wanted to be a painter. But a three-dimensional design class that I was forced to take, I didn't want to take it completely transformed my life. And I have to say also, I'm the hugest fan of arts education. It's so enabling and invigorating and confidence building when you know the answer isn't in the back of the book and it's in you. And that's at the same time, a big responsibility. You can't just do anything, but you have to do a lot of soul searching and creative strategizing, but I loved it. It changed my life and it's what led me to be a teacher. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting too, and I think this is really interesting and I don't know your thoughts on it, but so many fashion designers and people in fashion started out as sculptors or wanting to study architecture or studying architecture. And I think it's really interesting that still, if that provides a creative pathway to fashion, probably because you're thinking of three dimension and especially with sculpture, you're thinking of the dressed form. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that because you're certainly not alone in, in starting there and moving on to fashion. Well, I have precisely your thoughts. You're quite right. And 
the study of architecture before delving into fashion is especially prevalent in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I think people like Asadine Elias studied it. And it's super interesting that, you know, not all of these arts are, you know, siphoned off from each other. They're actually intimately intertwined in a lot of many ways. They are. And it's really, it's about problem solving. And when you understand what problem solving is and you wrap your brain and your arms around it, it translates to anything that, that it, it involves a problem that needs to be solved. Absolutely. And you are, you know, without a doubt, a king of problem solvers. You have excellent, I mean, you're known for giving excellent thought-provoking and thoughtful advice to fashion designers, but you didn't necessarily start out in fashion, although you did make your way to Parsons, where you worked at New York for 24 years from 1983 to 2007. Can you talk to us about how you got into teaching? Well, thank you very much. I'm very flattered. I never dreamed of being a teacher. Other than my fine arts experience for four years, I really, I hated school. I hated the social aspect. I probably would have, would have loved the pandemic time when people were Zooming. Right. Uh, <laughs> I could have been at home. But a mentor of mine as an art student invited me to be her teaching assistant for a summer school course for high school students. And I said, of course, I mean, I wouldn't, disappoint Rona Slade for anything. And I loved teaching with her. It was a six-week course. We had a blast. So that ended in early August. And she called me a couple of weeks later to say that she had a faculty member drop out. She was the chair of the fine arts department at the school. She had a faculty member drop out and she would like me to teach the three-dimensional design class. Well, once again, I didn't want to disappoint her. I said, yes, of course. But that first week of school, you may have heard the story, but yeah. I'm, I'm worth repeating. <laughs> I would throw up in the school's parking lot every morning. Oh, my gosh. And I would race myself against one of the studio walls and stay there. Because if I were to walk away from the wall, my knees would buckle and I'd fall down to the floor. I was a wreck. So as the week progressed, I was rehearsing what I would say to Rona to get out of doing this anymore because I thought that th this is not good for my mental health or my physical health. So I had a meeting with her after class on Friday. And I, again, I'd rehearsed everything that I wanted to say. And she listened attentively. And she looked at me across her desk and she said, well, I trust that this will either kill you or cure you. And I'm counting on the latter. Good day. <laughs> so I thought, oh, no, I've got to do this all over again. Well, I work through the issues. And, and I'll share with you, for anyone who's new to teaching or thinking about teaching, one of my major sources of, of anxiety was I thought I needed to be the answer person. I thought anything that the students ask me, I can't show my limitations or my ignorance, I'll even say, by not knowing the answer. I thought, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. I'm, it was well in advance of Google, but I'm not Google. So what I would do is turn the question back to the students in the class and say, excellent question. I want each of you to research an answer for the next class and share it with everyone. And I want you to reach out for an answer that you think no one else will have. So it was a way of really motivating them to look for the unexpected as opposed to what we probably would think it's the immediate answer to that question. I loved it. It was fascinating. And the students loved it. They really loved being in that position. So my advice is don't think you have to know everything you don't. 
and put it right back on the students. They're more capable than any of us give them credit for. Well, thank you, because I'm actually possibly, probably going to be teaching my first fashion history course at a university this upcoming spring. So thank you for that advice. Oh, well, that's thrilling. Congratulations. And how lucky <laughs> your you. students are. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. it is, I mean, as many podcasts as I've done, it's behind a microphone. I'm not in front of anybody. So it is nerve wracking. But you give me hope and confidence. <laughs> well, the, the other aspect of this, Cassidy, is so few people know so little about fashion history, you'll be holding the cards. It's true. And that's what I'm hoping to bring because they've never really had a fashion history course to my knowledge at this university. Can you talk to us a little bit about your time at Parsons? Because you are credited with single-handedly turning the fashion department around and putting it really on the fashion map. I mean, it's an internationally famous institution and especially that program, which you left in 2007. Can you talk a little bit about that program overhaul and what you achieved there? Certainly. I want everyone to know, though, that I was at Parsons for 17 years before receiving this assignment. I was a faculty member and later was given an administrator's yoke of, of sorts. I was made associate dean. And my duties were, there were multiple, but for the most part, I was a, <laughs> how to phrase this politely. Well, I won't phrase it politely. I was a pooper scooper. I was the person who went in and helped to fix things that were broken. And I wanted to say, people have to stop pooping so much around here because there was a lot that was broken. And that's actually how the fashion assignment was handed to me. The department was in a crisis of leadership. We abandoned a search that we had had for a year for a new department chair. We just couldn't find anyone adequate. And the dean, my boss, said, we're going to send you in at least for a year as acting chair to help diagnose what's going on in this program and offer up a prescription for how to fix it. And when I got there, I realized when I arrived in the fashion department, I realized this is much bigger than just a leadership issue. Because you won't believe this, the curriculum in the department had not changed since 1952. 48 years. Wow. No computer technology of any kind, no marketing courses, no fashion history. Oh, my goodness. My first year there, I really, all that I could do was absorb and learn from what I was absorbing and pummel people with, with questions. And one of my most important questions was, why is there no fashion history in this curriculum? You won't believe the answer. Yeah, well, you will, <laughs> as I'm telling you the answer. <laughs> the answer was, we don't want the students to be influenced. Isn't that just wow. mind-blowing? That what? is mind-blowing. <laughs> students in any arts discipline have a responsibility to know the history of their discipline. I said, what if you're, what if you're a, a sculptor? What if you're a sculptor working on a mountaintop somewhere and you've never had an art history course and you've likely not been to a museum because you're living in a remote area and it's before the internet. So you load up your sculptures, you drive to New York to the 57th Street Galleries, I guess now it's Chelsea, but then it would have been 57th Street. And you say, I have these sculptures I want you to see. And the owner of the gallery says to you, where'd you find all these brand koozies? <laughs> exactly. And, and you ask who? 
I mean, <laughs> you know, with fashion history, things beget certain things. I mean, Norman Norell begat Halston, who begat Donna Karen. I mean, it's a whole string of DNA and relationships. It was insane. So I put in a mandatory three-semester sequence of fashion history courses because the students had to have that. And they, there was a fervor for it. They really, they wanted it, but the department was resistant. I mean, that is fascinating. I don't think that's something that our listeners might not know about you. I certainly didn't know that you instituted fashion history courses, but you've also written a book on fashion history and it's entitled Tim Gunn's Fashion Bible, The Fascinating History of Everything in Your Closet. This was in 2012. Um, And I guess we'll segue to talking about that and our shared love of fashion history, because like I said, you're a beloved mentor and fashion authority the world over. And I was so thrilled to learn you'd written this fashion history book because now we can have a conversation about it. And Tim, this was no small feat. This book covers like a giant swath of history. I think you say from caveman animal hides to the latest runway collections. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind this book? Well, I can tell you the catalyst for the book. When I arrived in the fashion department, this was a completely unexpected assignment. I wasn't a fashion person. And also the fashion department at Parsons was physically separate by a mile and a half. So it wasn't even in proximity. You couldn't just walk by and and absorb things. So it was, for the most part, an unknown area for me. And as part of my learning curve, I was reading a lot of fashion history books. And I thought, these books are so, well, you know, they're dense. They cover obscure topics. I mean, the expansion and contraction of the Elizabethan color over 30 (laughs) years. Really? So I thought, I want to write a fashion history book that is relatable. So that's why I thought, let's look at our closet and then let's trace the lineage of these items. And I love doing it, but it was a real labor of love. And I did it with Ada Calhoun, without whom I can't do most things. And Ada's the great disciplinarian. Because we already had a contract, we had a study carol at the New York Public Library and access to the stacks, which go eight stories underneath Bryant Park. And I was like a kid in a candy shop. I couldn't collect enough stuff. I kept running into things. And just on the topic of education in general, I just want to say this about that whole stacks experience. It's so thrilling to have an experience where discovery is at the core of it, as opposed to, I'll say Google again, and I'm a, I use Google all the time, but when you're searching for something, Google can only respond to what you're asking Google for. Right. And when you're in a library with stacks, you run into things that you would never have run into otherwise that can really cause a kind of epiphany. Oh, good heavens, I didn't know about this, and let's find out more about it. So at any rate, I'm carrying on a, as, as, I'm, as I'm inclined to do. No, I mean, I love it. Do you have an aha moment from your experience? I've interned at the Special Collections Department at FIT, where April, my co-host, works, and you have a standing invitation to go visit her there, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you. Well, I will, because I, I work with Valerie Steele a lot in, oh, in yeah. the museum. Then, yeah. I mean, maybe you've been to the Special Collections Department, but they, I I mean, they just have a world-class collection of, you know, manuscripts, collections, magazines, designer archives. It's just an incredible amount of fashion history and fashion plate galore. And I interned there and I would be in the back stack, same thing. And you just, you're like, okay, I'm just going to open this box. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know, some beautiful Peshawar hand stenciled plate. So did you have any moments like that in the stacks? 
every single solitary day, every day. It was thrilling and invigorating. And of course, it propelled me forward to the next day. And what else can we find? And that's why Ada put the brakes on. She said, stop, you could do this forever. And we've got to meet our deadline. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you do. I mean, the book is so creative because it's you literally take items in people's closets. So I think there's something like 20 chapters, but you have like blue jeans and T-shirts and shoes and you provide, I mean, it's such an expansive topic you've chosen and you did a really good job researching and using, you know, like primary and secondary sources and you do it in a really fun and accessible way that people can relate to. You even give fashion advice. That's part and parcel of this project because you're Tim Gunn and that's, you know, what we have come to expect and love from you. And then you give us this great history lesson about why it's important. I love that you talk so much about American fashion history. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about why you think American, you know, versus like French European fashion history is also equally important. Oh, I'd love to talk about it. And I'll tell you what, what motivated me to be a real champion of American fashion and American fashion history. All right, I'll give you the context. We're at Parsons. I'm the new chair of this program. Oh, and I should add, when earlier when I said that the dean said this was a one-year appointment, I had been there for three months, and I wrote a State of the Union for him about how awful everything was and how backwards. And I said, this is not a one-year gig. This is someone, it may not be me, but someone has to not only help conjure a new curriculum, but then maintain it. And part of My concern, even about a new curriculum, was the pedagogy at Parsons was so, well, in the fashion department, was so backwards. Students had no voice. It was only the instructor who could speak. And it was, again, mind-blowingly bad. Um, (laughs) What's my point? Oh, I'm chair of the fashion program at Parsons. And you may not believe this. The other department chairs, and there were 12, maybe 13, They had such disdain for fashion and maligned it constantly. It was insulting and insulting to the entire culture of fashion, but it is especially to a to American fashion. And I thought, I need to stand up for this industry, not to defend it as much as to advocate for it. And around the same time, I was invited to an educators conference in Copenhagen and I didn't know until I got there, I was the only one representing an American school. And the other educators were were from Europe and Asia. And again, malignment. Ugh, you Americans, all you do is think about selling clothes. And I said, you know, I'm proud that we look at American fashion through a lens of commerce. Because if someone isn't buying it, who cares? I mean, otherwise, it's just a, a museum relic. There's nothing more thrilling than designing something and seeing it on someone on the street. I had a wonderful student by the name of Latoya LaFleur. She won my my telling the story. And she won a a competition that was a summer scholarship or paid uh, internship at Target in Minneapolis. And she returned from her internship for her senior year. And I asked her, I said, Latoya, how was it? And she said, oh, you know, a lot of dumb, boring clothes and handbags. She was primarily an accessory designer. And I said, well, it's an important thing to learn about and to know how to work within that rubric. And 
about a month later, she runs screaming into my office, screaming with joy. She says, I just saw someone on the street with my handbag. And <laughs> for me, that was, I still get chills when I tell that story. That was it. I mean, what greater compliment is there to a designer than to see someone wearing it? So I, I proudly raise the flag to American fashion. Also, you know this story. Parsons was the first fashion program in the nation, founded in 1906. And at the time, the early graduates didn't have much of an industry in New York to, to go to because America was a nation of copiers. We were copying the couture collections and here it was perfectly legal. So scores of early graduates went to Hollywood to be part of the burgeoning movie industry. Travis Banton, Irene Sheriff, Gilbert Adrian, just to name a few. And it really wasn't until World War II when the couture houses in Paris all closed, though I just learned that one of them didn't. Oh, Laudin stayed open. So suddenly American fashion is left with nothing to copy. So then you see the rise of Claire McCardle and Norman Norell to name two significant players. And we have a whole new sweeping arena that we never turn our back on. So it was, it was the plus side, side to World War II. <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting too, because I actually have written a lot about a Trapagan school of fashion. I don't know if you've ever heard oh, of it. Oh, Trapagan, sure, yeah. 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 So Ethel Trapagan was my actually my thesis paper at my, my MA. I studied at the Fashion Institute of Technology and their master's program there. And my MA was on Ethel Trapagan, who founded the Trapagan School of Fashion in the 1920s. And she was, you know, just a huge advocate of American fashion because of the very reasons you're talking about. She was just so furious that design was just copying the French, right? And so she really encouraged American design and industry, but, and her school was open until the 60s, but it really was World War II when the, not all the fashion houses closed, but they were cut off, right? And so America kind of had to come into their own and pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? And show their designing chops. And we're it's so true. glad they did. And you, many and you, of the men, the male designers had to go to war and their sourcing was cut off. So things were, there were, there were slim pickings. Yeah, absolutely. And again, a lot of American foundational design, like you were talking about, was teaching students, like at the Trapagan Institute, they taught students, she had a museum, and, you know, we would call this cultural appropriation today, but encouraging you to look at sources, right, to find yes. inspiration. It's kind of one of the core tenets of designing. Of course, there's original design, but who, who unless you're sitting in like a closet in a dark room, you're going to be influenced by everything around you. And you should be. I mean, I wholeheartedly believe that, if only to react against it um, and to have opinions about it. You should be influ influenced. I have to tell you, I'm a workaholic, I admit it. And when I was chairing the fashion program, I was there seven days a week. And on Sundays, I would go into the studios because I knew who was in the, the studios the, on, on Saturday. And the students who, had, who were back on Sunday, I would order them out. Get out of here. Go to a movie. Go to, to the Metropolitan Museum. Go to the museum at FIT. Just walk the streets, look at what people are wearing, get out of here. You're in New York City and you'll suffocate creatively if you don't have some nourishment. And that's something I loved so much about, we'll talk about in a minute here, but about making the cut. 
is that the very first season was just so epic on every scale. Like that was just, there's no other word for that season, but epic because I know the pandemic hit for season two and three, but season one, you have, you're in Paris, you're in Tokyo. And when you get to Paris, you're sending the designers to the Museum of Decorative Arts. You're sending the designers to the Saint Laurent Museum for inspiration. And now learning so much about you and fashion history, so much of you is in that show. And I can see it so much more than Project Runway. I can see your influence and your hand in making the cut. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I just have a few more questions about fashion history. I thought I would do a little like rapid fire at you, (laughs) rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit more in relationship to fashion history. Do you have a favorite fashion film? Oh, I have several. Well, that's okay. Probably Blow Up, Michelangelo Antonioni, and certainly Funny Face. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Classic. Yeah. Pret-a-Porter. The Women. Yes, Adrian. Yes. You know, there was such an excitement about Adrian's costume designs for film that I'm sure you, you know this, but I'm, your listeners may not, that a ready-to-wear collection started with Adrian's label so that people could actually wear the clothes. And it was the Lada Lenye, Joan Crawford look, that iconic one that was really the catalyst for that. Oh, yeah. The Letty Linton, the giant yeah. sleeved chiffon, 1930s. The tie, they called them the movie tie-ins. Like you could buy what you saw on the screen. Yeah, I don't think, I think Hollywood designers are kind of in the narrative that that traditional narrative of fashion history, they're kind of underappreciated and how like influential they actually were starting in the 20s. I always talk about how, you know, they they never did the drop waist, like shiftless looks in the 20s. The fashion designers in Hollywood, they were like, we want to see the slim, you know, the women's bodies. And so they never subscribed to that. And therefore they were ahead of the 1930s silhouette, um, which I always find fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And Adrian, we're actually remiss dress listeners because we have not done an Adrian episode, but we need to do that. Course correct that sooner than later. <laughs> I loved in your book, I could tell that you read Poiret's memoir, which he's such a who. And do you have any favorite fashion history books? That's a tough one. <laughs> well, Valerie Steele has written a lot of wonderful books and I love all of them. In fact, her, yeah, and I'm sure you've read it, her treatise on the corset mm-hmm. is Incredibly fascinating. Incredibly fascinating. That may be one of my favorite favorites, though I have to say the Metropolitan Museum's catalogs from their fashion exhibits, those that are historical, are excellent. And um, I have a considerable library and I'm constantly rereading things. Though I want, just want to add this, is it's more in the category of popular culture than probably than fashion history. But for people who are interested in fashion and interested in an historic icon, Diana Vreeland's memoir, DV, is really a hoot. I can't remember the anecdote. There's an anecdote with Jack Nicholson in a drugstore, and I can't remember it exactly, but that's like kind of how her memoir starts, and it's so hilarious. She's so funny. <laughs> I mean, as are you. You're, this book is so funny. Like I've read, you've written multiple books, and you always inject such a sense of humor in there. You have this whole thing where you're deriding the cargo capri, which is so oh. hilarious. And when you don't like something, I mean, you have no problem telling us why, which I love and which people appreciate. Right. We look to you for guidance on what to wear and what we shouldn't wear. So do you have a favorite fashion designer, alive or dead? Oh, alive, Diane von Furstenberg. I mean, talk about staying power. She's as relevant today as she was in the 1970s. And she's a remarkable individual. She's also a friend, I have to say. And I came to know her when she was on the Parsons board. 
And I have to tell you a funny story. When I was appointed to the fashion department, Diane came up to my office to see me, to lend her support, which was wonderful. And while we were sitting talking, she kept giving me a peculiar look. And I thought, what is this? And there's a line from I Love Lucy at walking into the grand ballroom and smelling raw cauliflower cooking. And that was the look she was giving me. I asked me, what's wrong? And she said, she gestured up and down my body and said, this is wrong. She said, you need a new wardrobe. These Brooks Brothers suits are just not cutting it in this industry. So I went out and bought a black leather blazer and several black turtlenecks and black dress pants. And I was in black for seven years. That is really fascinating because you are synonymous with your impeccably tailored suits. I would never have guessed that. Well, can I tell you the story about the suits too? Yes. Is this your pretty woman moment? Because I love it. I had a very small role in the Smurfs movie. Neil Patrick Harris and um, Hank Azria and uh, Sofia Vergara. And the costume designer, Rita Ryak, she and I had a telephone call before the filming began. And I said, well, what recommendations do you have? And she said, oh, you're Tim Gunn. I wouldn't dream of telling you what to wear. Just wear whatever you want. So I did. And we had a, a full day on the set. And she called me that night at home. And she said, I just looked at the day's rushes. Your clothes aren't good enough. Oh, well, talk about ego back. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, I said, well, I don't know what to do about that because that's what I have. And, you know, things of the same nature. She said, well, tomorrow, meet me at one o'clock at a tailor on 54th Street, and we'll go through some options. So I did. And I'll give you a full confession. The clothes I was buying, you know, I'm, I'm working on a pauper salary. Project Runway was happening, but I was not paid anything until I finally got an agent. So I was shopping at Banana Republic, and I loved their clothes at the time. I haven't been back for quite a while, so I can't comment now. but. When I met Rita at the tailor, I went into the dressing room and I was looking at price tags. $450 tie, a $700 shirt, a $6,000 suit. I said, I'm not going to wear these things. This is ridiculous. Also, things were in what I thought were clashing patterns. A windowpane suit with a gingham shirt and a striped tie. I said, I'm going to look like the circus is in town. And she kept saying, put it on. Damn it. Just put it on. (laughs) So something happened to me. I sort of hit the wall like a long distance runner does. And I thought, you know what? I really love these clothes. But then that was the problem. I then I had this taste for expensive clothing and I was spending way too much money on really good clothes. Then (laughs) there was an article in the New York Times about a new store opening here in New York called Suit Supply. And the article said, if you're that guy who's shopping at Saks and Bergdorf's and Barney's, you need to check this out. And I thought, oh, this sounds way too good to be true. Well, I haven't shopped anywhere else since. And that was 10 years ago, at least. And I'm not paid to plug them, but it's a really (laughs) excellent brand. They're out of the Netherlands. They've been in Europe for 30 or 40 years and only in the States for about 10. And they're all over the States now. But they said to me, if we'd known we were going to be a big success here, we would have changed our name because suit supply <laughs> sounds a lot like dress barn. <laughs> so anyway, I thank Rita Ryak for my transformation. 
But <laughs> she was an immovable force. Let me tell you, I thought, well, if I can't beat her, I'll have to join her. <laughs> That's so fascinating because I think that was in 2010. I mean, like I said, you're so synonymous with, you know, impeccably tailored and accessorized suits. It's such a to-do on like Project Runway or making the cut when you deviate from your suits <laughs> to wear coveralls or say a sweater. But yeah, I mean, we all look up to you, Tim, and we all, all have to have so much to learn from you and how you've evolved your style. So I think it's really fascinating that the suits look is only from the last like 10 years or so. Yeah. No, I was wearing, like most men, I was wearing suits that were at least one size too big for me. And I got a serious education from Rita. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Tim, I have to know, did you ever in your like wildest imagination, you didn't think you were going to be a fa an educator, much less a fashion educator. Did you ever think you would be like the breakout reality star of like a hit? internationally hit reality fashion competition. Oh, Cassidy, you flatter me <laughs> again. Oh, it was nowhere in my vocabulary. I mean, when we were taping season one of Project Runway, and people may know this, I was never intended to be on camera. I was a consultant. And I was thrown in at the last minute because I think the producers were worried that the designers wouldn't talk, at least in, in the workroom. I never dreamed there'd be a season two, let alone 16 seasons with Heidi. Um, and now making the cut. I mean, it's all so surreal for me. And it all happened after I turned 50. 
So anyone who's thinking, oh, I'm turning 50, I'm going into the twilight of my life, it may be just the beginning of an entirely new and sensational trajectory. Wow. And can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Because obviously you'd been at Parsons, like we said, for 24 years. I think you became the chair of the department in the early 2000s, if I'm not 2000. mistaken. Yes. I think Project Runway came knocking in like, I don't know, in the early 2000s as well, like 2002 or three, maybe? They made the call in 2000, late 2003, the producers did. And then we met in January of 2004. And I have to tell you, when they called me, and told me what they wanted to do. I said, fashion reality? This industry has enough trouble without that. (laughs) So they said, look, we just need 10 minutes. And I Googled the producers before I met with them and found out that they were the producers of Project Greenlight, which is about filmmaking and has a huge amount of integrity and seriousness of purpose. And I thought, all right, this could be interesting. And then when they told me that they weren't going to pick people at random from the street and say, you, we can make you into a fashion designer, that they wanted to work with real fashion designers. I said, okay, I'm keenly interested now. But then I didn't hear from them for several months and it all left my head. I thought, okay, they found someone else, whatever. And then they called and we were working together. And the show was never intended to be at Parsons, ever. We were outfitting a large loft space in the apartment building where the designers were going to live. But we didn't have any money. We didn't have any budget. And I knew that we were taping in August and the summer session of Parsons was over, would be over, and the fall semester would not have begun. So I said, well, you want to look at Parsons? I mean, I can show you around the studios and we can look at the equipment and see what you think. So that's how it happened. It was never intended, ever. Oh, if you don't mind, a couple more minutes about that. So We're taping at Parsons. I call the legal department. I call of of Central, the new school, Central Parsons. I call the dean, the president's office to get permission to do this because I've been in this education business for enough years to know that you need to ask permission for things. So granted permission, I'm told to work out a contract with so-and-so. I mean, Project Runway was paying Parsons to be there when it's, you know, a zillion dollars worth of publicity. Yeah. (laughs) So three days before we were wrapping, I received a phone call from the head of student services saying, I understand that you're taping a television program there. And I said, yeah, it's been cleared by everybody. She said, well, it wasn't cleared by me. And she said, you are putting this entire academic institution at risk by this irresponsible action. I thought, oh, my God. (laughs) So I said to my colleagues, knowing how the university works, said, here's the good news. By the time that individual gets up here with her team, the show will be long gone. And sure enough, it was a week later that she came up. So I'm dragged into the legal office. I am metaphorically whipped and beaten about how this is a terrible thing and it should never have happened and who can we talk to make certain it doesn't air, on, on. Well, then the show airs and I'll say, frankly, it's a hit. So all those people at the university, they're all congratulating themselves about what a great idea this was And aren't we clever? And I'm thinking, yeah, you guys are really clever. Great (laughs) idea. Yeah. Congratulations. But it's surreal. (laughs) 
You can't make this stuff up. No, you can't. And you've obviously done so much for that program. I mean, just first being the chair of the department and turning that program around and then to put it on the international map on this hit, huge hit TV show. I mean, really, the rest is history, right? After that first season, because now it's still continuing. Of course, it's no longer, you and Heidi are no longer there, but it had, you know, spinoffs. I think there was a Project Runway Juniors. Oh, we actually, I did two seasons of that. I loved it. I loved those people. Remarkable. And it's been credited with inspiring a whole generation of people to pursue fashion design. And it didn't, I think there was this fear, and you've written about it, there was this idea that like, as you kind of just alluded to, actually, that this was somehow going to not look good for the department and it wasn't going to be a good thing. But in fact, it actually took people behind the scenes of fashion and showed them what goes into, you know, this design process. And I think people had a newfound respect for it. I agree with you because the fashion magazines in particular, before Project Runway, were really, for the most part, intent upon having this sort of veil of glamour draped over the whole industry. And when you look at Project Runway, you realize it's not so glamorous. It's really tough. It's gritty. And unless you love it, don't do it. So the edit, the editors, the fashion editors in particular, were very critical of the show when it first came out. But the fashion designers loved it because they could say to their families, turn the show on. You'll understand what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And it matters and it's important, right? I mean, we haven't talked too much about why fashion matters and why, you know, specifically speaking to like why what we put on our bodies matter. But I guess the fact that we're even having this conversation on a podcast about fashion history alludes to that. And also it's it's what we said earlier about the semiotics of clothes. The clothes we wear send a message about how the world perceives us. And that's a very tall order. I say to people all the time, I don't care what you wear, whatever you want as long as you accept responsibility for wearing it. But don't say, (laughs) I don't care about fashion, um, means nothing to me. Well, you need to care because like it or not, you leave your front door and you go out in the world and people are making certain assumptions about you. Yeah, and you're actually projecting something about yourself, whether you're intending to or not, whether you claim to care or not. I mean, that's the famous, that's the famous Devil Wears Prada moment, right? With Miranda Priestley and talking about the blue sweater. Why fashion matters to all of us and fashion specifically, right? As an industry, as an embodied practice. But, and as you know, the success of this show and now making the cut, I want to kind of jump forward to today because you and Heidi have joined forces to create what you've talked about as really your dream reality competition, making the cut. You've done things with this show that you couldn't do with Project Runway. both executive producers. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired this show and how it differs from Project Runway? Because it's really significant, I think, to make those kind of points. Well, and going back to 2004 with the inception of Project Runway, it was really seminal at the time. And it was also right on the cusp of American fashion beginning to embrace young entrepreneurial thinking designers. So it was very, very relevant and very timely. But as you know, American fashion is constantly evolving, it's constantly changing, and it certainly had reached a new, it it certainly had achieved a new presence by the middle of the 2010s, and Heidi and I certainly knew that, and we really very desperately wanted to make some changes, but as with most successes, why fix something that's not broken? And we were saying that we're talking about relevance. We're talking about a reflection of the industry and sending a message about, in this particular case, with making the cut, the complexities of the industry. So 
when we had the opportunity to move on, we did. And we thought, well, we'll see if there's any interest in this. And there certainly was. And actually, Amazon learned that, I love this term, that learned that Heidi and I were on the market. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked our agents whether we would speak with them. Well, sure. And we had three wonderful concept meetings. And the concept is really about, or the, at the core of it, it's really about fashion branding. So it's much more than a, a pretty dress. It's about sourcing, marketing, merchandising, advertising, managing a team. There's so many elements that go into it. And I will say it wasn't until our third meeting with Amazon that the light bulb went off about what if we were to partner with Amazon Fashion so that people can actually buy the clothes. Instantly. Yeah, instantly, exactly. So it really, I get chills now when I think about that. So it was an opportunity when we still feel it's a dream. And there's no other platform that could possibly achieve this other than Amazon. And we're thrilled with the success of the show. We hope it continues. We make no assumptions and we'll see. But I have to say, going back to your lovely remarks, Cassidy, about season one, that was phenomenal. That, and it was pre-pandemic and we had to modify things considerably once we couldn't travel. Just standing in front of the Eiffel Tower for that fashion show was... Yeah, the first fashion the, show. Yeah. I kept turning to people saying, is this a green screen? <laughs> just, <laughs> well, you're like was, pinching yourself, right? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's the height, right? It's um, one of the heights of your career, I'm sure. And sitting there at the show that you have been instrumental in creating... In closing, I just want to ask you one more question because I would argue you're instantly synonymous with two things. As mentioned, impeccably tailored suits, but also kindness. Heidi has described you as the kindest, most humble person you'll ever meet. And this is something that you write about in all of the books that you've written and you've injected it into the DNA of Project Runway and also making it work. And I just want to know if you could talk to us a little bit about why kindness is so important to you, because I think especially in an industry like as cutthroat as fashion can be, you bring kindness, you insist on kindness, and you inspire us all. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Uh, well, again, your remarks are very flattering. For me, a lot of this happened when I was in my early days of teaching, because I found out quickly that if your students perceive you to be, even if your intention is not to be, but if your, stu if your students perceive you to be mean-spirited, unkind, they discredit you. They just shut you down and shut you out. And then nothing you say to them really matters anymore. And I thought, I can't have that happen because I'm here to help. I'm here to nurture and support and to be a cheerleader. And I need them to know that. So in all sincerity, I'm not putting on a show or assuming a role that I wouldn't have otherwise. I like being kind. I like, in many ways, I, I, I rehearse in my head what I intend to say to an ind individual or even to a group. And I asked myself, how would I respond if I were to hear these words with this intonation? And it requires having a very healthy dose of empathy to be able to project and consider how someone else will respond to this. And it doesn't mean that I sugarcoat things. I mean, I can be a very blunt instrument. <laughs> I love that about you, too, because you don't sugar things. You're no. very nice, but you also have no problem being honest and telling people how you feel. It's the way you do it. Yeah, I think it's why people will listen or not even listen. I don't care about them listening. 
it's why people will engage in a conversation because they know that my intentions are only the best for them. And if I have something critical to offer, perhaps they should listen to it. Though I have to tell you, Cassidy, when in my critique experience, and even as a teacher, but it's easier as a teacher, in my mentor experience, my greatest joy is poking and prodding enough, and that's a, my Socratic approach to just pummeling people with questions, but doing that enough so that the designer actually sees what I see without my telling the designer what that is. That's the greatest joy. It's like, okay, you get it. Now it's up to you what you do, but at least I can walk away from your workstation knowing that you're fully aware of what the issues are. I always say I accept absolutely no credit for the, any designer's success, and I don't blame myself for their missteps either because I don't, I don't command. I don't say, well, you have to do this or you have to do that. It's like, we're in this together. Let's look at this work together. And these are issues I see. And the decision-making is completely up to you. It's in a spirit that, that allows people to know that I'm sincere and I only want the best for them. And that is true. Yeah, and it comes across like that on camera, which is just why we all love you so much because you're sincere, you're genuine, and you bring kindness and compassion and expertise, right? Everybody, you know, all of these designers really respect you and, you know, respect what you have to say. And it's the way you do it and the way you say it. I think that makes us all respect you as well. And Tim, this has just been such a treat. I can't tell you what an honor this has been. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and share with us a little bit about what you do and where you come from. Cassidy, thank you. And if I can ever be of assistance to you, I'm here for you. And I'm so thrilled that you're going to be teaching. That's wonderful. Yes. And I have you as an example. I've read all your books now. So I'm taking many of your lessons to heart. Thank you so uh, much. Well, thank you for your time and your very thoughtful questions and engagement. Cass, this was a total delight to have Tim on the show. Oh, absolutely. Definitely a career highlight for myself and something I will always cherish getting to talk to Tim. And I do want to address one omission that I'm sure our dress listeners noted. And that was that I completely forgot to ask Tim about how he coined his famous catchphrase, make it work. We had such a wonderful time chatting, I forgot to look at my notes. Um, so interesting fact, Tim actually coined that phrase pre-Project Runway, and that was while teaching at Parsons. Apparently, one of his students wanted to throw away their entire collection, five months of work, and start from scratch out of frustration. And they just had one week left until it hit the runway. And instead of letting her do that, Tim encouraged her to problem solve and quote-unquote make it work. And so, of course, this is one of Tim's many invaluable lessons that extends beyond the atelier and into our everyday lives. Tim is such a fountain of wisdom and joy, and it was a pleasure to have him on the show. Don't forget to check out Making the Cut on Amazon Prime if you haven't already, and get your hands on any one of Tim's wonderful books, including Tim Gunn's Fashion Bible, The Fascinating History of Everything in Your Closet. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you remember to be kind while making it work next time you get dressed. 
Remember, we love hearing from you, so please email us at dress to iheartmedia.com and be sure and check out our Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. As always, special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.